Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to each one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this word, for recording it and preserving it and putting it in our hands. Now, O Lord, as we study this word, we pray, Lord, you would put it into our hearts and put it into the, the economy of our lives, Lord, that we would be changed by this word. We pray that the change would take place even now as we look to you, O Lord, to be our teacher, our guide, he who transforms us into the likeness of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The subject of today's message is God's sovereign grace. And uh, it, it's a subject that offers more comfort in times of trouble, uh, more strength in times of weakness, uh, more motivation in times of lethargy uh, than any doctrine that I can think of. Uh, but unfortunately, very, very few people will actually tolerate the doctrine of God's sovereign grace. And this is not a modern issue either. On May 4th, 1856, Charles Spurgeon preached on this subject. And I have a, a little portion of his introduction here that I want to share with you. It's interesting how he introduced uh, this subject to his congregation all of those years ago. He says, There is no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine, divine sovereignty. Now, he's using the words divine sovereignty, but what he preached on very much was God's sovereign grace. He says, There's no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children ought to be more earnestly uh, to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. 
the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Uh, sounds good so far, right? Sounds good so far. But it's interesting what he says next. On the other hand, there's no doctrine more hated by worldlings. No truth of which they have made such a football is the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. He has a couple of thoughts here that are very interesting. He says men will allow God to be everywhere except for on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be in His almondry. Almondry is an old word we don't probably ever hear at all. Uh, uh, God's almondry would be the place where He dispenses His blessings. It would be the place where He dispenses the things that we often call on God for. They will allow Him to be in His almondry to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God and His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose of His His creatures as He thinks without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on His throne is not the God they love. They love Him anywhere better than they do when He sits with His scepter in His hand and His crown upon His head. I share this with you because this is not a modern problem. Uh, The doctrine of God's uh, sovereign grace has always been a problem uh, for us. And... um, in the sermon that's going to follow here, I, I'm going to share a couple of reasons why I think that is. Now, the, the subject this morning is God's sovereign grace because that is the subject of the parable uh, that we have come to. I'll turn your attention to the first verse. Jesus says the, kev- the kingdom of heaven is like... Uh, we've heard Jesus speak this way before at various times, haven't we? Uh, what Jesus is trying to do is He's trying to teach us... Uh, just what heaven is like, if you will, or what the kingdom of God is like. Sometimes we might sit and think to ourselves, well, I wonder what it's like in heaven. I wonder what it's like for the angels. I wonder what it's like for the saints who have gone through the door of death and into the presence of God and dwell there now. Well, Jesus has given us pictures, isn't He? You want to know what it's like? Well, we turn to Matthew 20 and we get a little lesson in what it's like. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. If we lived in ancient Israel, uh, we would probably, if we were common laborers, we'd probably gather in the marketplace. We would want to get there probably 5-ish in the morning. Uh, 5.30 might be even a bit late. And we would be there gathered waiting for someone to come by and hire us and give us, uh, give us some work. And this is what the master in the parable is doing. He's going to the marketplace. He hires a group of folks. He agrees to pay them a denarius. Uh, for the day. They happily agree to those wages and they begin working probably around 6 a.m., 6 o'clock in the morning. And then we're told that around the third hour, that's about 9 o'clock in the morning, the master goes out and hires another group of laborers. Uh, He does the same thing again around noon and he does the same thing around 3. And then finally, around the 11th hour, uh, these folks are probably working 12-hour days, Uh, Around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 
the master goes out into the marketplace and he hires a, a, a final group and sends them into his vineyard uh, to uh, finish the day out. Now, at the, uh, when, the, when the shift is over, the uh, master of the house calls his foreman and, and asks him to square up with the workers. Now, notice his instructions in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. The instructions are quite peculiar. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages. That all sounds fine. But here's something very peculiar. Beginning with the last up to the first. Beginning with the last up to the first. So the foreman is faithful. He calls the last group. The group has probably only been in the field for about an hour. He calls them in to square up with them. And we can imagine as they're being called in, the rest of the laborers are coming out of the field. There's probably a line gathering. And then the uh, foreman does something that's quite astonishing. He pays them one denarius. That's the full day's wage. Could you imagine that? Having only to put in an, an hour, get a full day's pay. Now imagine we're standing in the line. A word like that has a tendency to travel <laughs> pretty quickly. What are we all going to be thinking? Wonder what we're going to get. They only worked an hour. They got a denarius. Well, I've been here since 3 o'clock. I got to count for something. I've been here since noon. What are you guys talking about? We've been here since all day. And those guys have been here since 9. It's hot over there. We bore the scorching heat. Well, their excitement quickly fades when they get to the front of the line. When the foreman hands them one denarius. How do they respond to this? Verse 11 tells us that they grumbled. These last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us, have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. How does the master respond? He says, I haven't done you any wrong. You, you remember at like five o'clock this morning, I told you I would pay you a denarius if you came and worked all day. And you were happy that with that arrangement at 5 o'clock this morning. Verse 15 is very, very important. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, with the chapter divisions where they are, it's uh, very easy for us to lose sight of the fact that what Jesus is doing in this parable is really is he's fleshing out uh, some responses of his disciples uh, back in chapter 19. It's easy to lose track of that. And if you recall, uh, last week we were talking about Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, and the, uh, the rich young man approaches Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do for eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And he says, well, which ones? Remember that? <laughs> well, okay, well, basically all of them. He says, well, this I've done. I've kept these completely. Uh, I've kept all these commandments. Well, Jesus, seeing his delusion, uh, goes and, and begins to uh, 
minister him, to him from a different angle. He says, well, here, here's something you can do. Go sell everything that you have. Uh, give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. Uh-oh. Uh, uh <laughs> he wasn't real interested in doing that. We're told that he walked away sad because he, is, he had great possessions, right? And then Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this astonished the disciples. Uh, the disciples had a different understanding of prosperity than what we have today. Typically, when we become prosperous today, we have a tendency to want to take all the credit for it ourselves. Look at me. I'm a great businessman. I make good decisions. Blah, 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 blah. And we forget about the fact that uh, prosperity actually involves a lot of providence. I mean, you have to be at the right place at the right time, with the right skill sets, with the right insights. There's so many variables that have to all be lined up for a person to become prosperous. Who lines all of that up? Hannah understood it. She said it's the Lord who makes poor and it's the Lord who makes rich. And the disciples understood it. And here's this rich young man. He would have been somebody that the disciples would have seen, but there's one really blessed man. He's really blessed by God. Look how blessed he is. And Jesus is saying, wait a second, it'd be easier to get that guy through the eye of a needle than it would be to get him into heaven. Look at him, he's walking away sad. He doesn't want to get rid of his stuff. He loves his stuff more than he loves the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples rightly, they say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus replies with man, it is impossible. You remember last week, I spent a lot of time talking about the doctrine of man. It's not exactly an exciting uh, or thrilling subject, but it's so central to the gospel. If we don't have a right understanding of the doctrine of man, we don't understand the gospel. Jesus says with man, it is impossible. What is impossible? Salvation is impossible. Left to our own, we're going to follow the rich young man. We're not going to get rid of our stuff. Left to our own, we're not even really interested in Jesus. In fact, left to our own, we're hostile towards God and the things of God. And that hostility is generally uh, expressed in indifference. We're just indifferent. We don't think of ourselves as being hostile. We just, we just, we're indifferent. But then Jesus says something, and thank, thank the Lord that that he follows that up with these words. He says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, this is the first inkling of the parable that we're about to study. With man it is impossible. That's our doctrine of man. That's our doctrine of salvation. Unless God does something, we're lost. Unless God does something in our lives, unless God does something in our hearts, we're lost. That's our doctrine of man. That's our doctrine of salvation. The good news is God has done something, and this is grace. It is sovereign grace. Now, noticing that the rich young man is walking away because he loves his stuff, Peter comments, he says, look, Lord, we've given up everything for you. It's an interesting comment, isn't it? It's a true comment. Peter and his gang, they did, didn't they? They left their family businesses. They've been following Jesus around. This is towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. They've been with him almost three years. 
Look, we've left everything. Sounds a little bit like the parable, doesn't it? We bore the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Can you start to see that connection? Well, Jesus says something after he assures Peter that he's going to be rewarded very generously. He says a, a sentence that's very hard to understand. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you see that? The very last verse of chapter 19. I, I, without the parable in chapter 20, I think it would be very hard to understand verse, that last verse of chapter 19. What does Jesus mean by many who are last will be first and many who are first will uh, be last? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, that's what he's fleshing out in the parable. In the, uh, um, um, the, the process of squaring up with these, uh, with these laborers, remember the instructions that the master gave to this foreman in verse 8. He says, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, when those folks that were hired at 5 o'clock got to the foreman to receive their wages, did they get what they, were, what they deserved? No. And for that matter, when the folks were hired at 3 o'clock or noon or 9 o'clock, I, I presume that everybody received a denarius. Did they get what they deserved? No, not at all. I can remember one of the cardinal rules. I don't know if you had this experience or not, but when I was in school, one of the cardinal rules, especially with a number of the teachers, was if you had a, a lifesaver or a, a piece of gum or something of that nature, you kept it to yourself. You didn't dare take it out during class and put it in your mouth because you know what would happen. I remember this happening to me one day. I had a lifesaver just indiscreetly putting it in my mouth, and the teacher stopped the class and said, Mr. Anderson, you have one of those for everybody. Uh, I looked at my little, about half a pack of Lifesavers, I'm no. <laughs> she goes, then you should keep those to yourself. And I remember thinking about that. I remember thinking, you know, in my locker, I've got a lunch too, but I don't have enough for everybody in there. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't quite understand that. I do understand that, you know, common courtesy and social etiquette, I mean, really um, obligates us. So if, we're, if, if, if someone comes to our home and I have a pot of coffee on, I'm not going to pour a, pot of coffee or a cup of coffee for myself and, and drink it in front of my company. I'm not going to do that. I understand that. Um, I don't think anyone in this room would do that. But there's this idea that we have that if we do something for one person, then it's really a cardinal rule that we should do that for everybody. And I think that there are many instances where that, I think we would all agree that's probably right, isn't it? But is it absolute? I think we have a tendency to make that absolute. And here's the point I'm leading to. Not only do we have a tendency to make that absolute, we direct that towards God. 
Only that God is completely and perfectly fair. Therefore, if he's going to give one of us a lifesaver, then he should give all of us a lifesaver. Well, the parable really challenges that idea, doesn't it? It really challenges that area, that, that idea. The master of the vineyard in the parable is, it represents God. And he has given grace to all of the laborers. I mean, those who worked all day for one denarius were blessed to have work. Uh, sometimes commentators will say that, you know, it's the first group, they received justice and the rest received grace. Uh, I, in one sense, I guess that's true, but I, I, I'm more comfortable saying that they've all received grace because the master didn't have to hire them. You know, when we get a job, I mean, the employer doesn't have to hire us. Uh, so it's a blessing when we get a job, isn't it? Um, but did he give the same grace to all of the workers? That's the question. And the answer is emphatically no, isn't it? Did God give equally to all no, that was the problem. That was what the complaint was about. But look at how, again, how God answers that complaint. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, this is where we start to have all kinds of problems. The envious heart sees God's grace and it causes jealousy. And the legalistic heart sees God's grace and it causes grumbling. That's usually what causes grumbling is a legalistic heart. When we have chronic complaining going on, uh, we usually will find a legalist. Uh, because what chronic complaining basically says is, God, you haven't been good enough to me. I really think that you should be better to me. You know, it's too humid outside. It's too cold. It's, too, not, it's not hot enough. You, you remember back in Matthew 11, uh, when John uh, the Baptist, he's in prison, and he sends the servants to Jesus and asks the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus responds to all of that. And then he commands John the Baptist. And as he's commending John the Baptist, he says, you know, this generation is, you're, you're like this, you know. We played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you wouldn't mourn. In other words, you can't be satisfied. When we have grumbling and complaining like that, it exposes a legalistic heart. And uh, there's a, there's a, uh, this is true of all of us. There's a germ of envy in each one of our hearts. There's a legalistic germ in each one of our hearts. And this parable has been given to us in order to expose that. It happened to Peter. Remember what he said as he, as he saw the rich young man walking away. He says, look, Lord, look. We've left everything to follow you. And that's what Jesus is responding to. You know, if we follow Jesus long enough, we're eventually going to come to a place where I think we might start to feel that way. Sometimes we can look around and we can see how uh, others are prospering. I mean, I, I'll use myself as an example. I'm not proud of this. Um, but... There's been different times through the course of this project where I've heard of churches that 
have started and are just doing magnificently in terms of numerical growth, in terms of their budget. And at different times, I've, I've called on the Lord and I've said, Lord, what's up with this? Because as I've heard about the prosperity of these various churches, I've also heard about some of the things that are going on in these churches. Some of the things that are being taught in these churches. And I think to myself, Lord, what's up with this? They're teaching all this nonsense and, you know, there they've got a budget that's self-supporting. They've got the whole nine yards. And what are, we, what, what are we doing here? We're trying to teach the Bible best we can. And what's, what's up with this? What's up with this is, well, Rick, you need to read Matthew chapter 20 is what's up with this. There's a great application here. There was a story that I encountered when I was uh, preparing for this message of uh, R.A. Torrey. He was doing some work in Australia. He was doing some, some meetings and he was teaching on prayer. And after a couple of his lectures, a, uh, a man who had been in the church for many, many years sent him a note and said, Mr. Torrey, please help me. I've been praying about a matter for many years and, and the Lord has not answered my prayer. It's almost as if the prayer is blocked. You know, I've been an elder in the church for some 20 years. I've been a Sunday school superintendent for probably 35. I've been a Christian all my life. I've tried to exalt God in everything that I do. You know, Mr. Torrey responded to the man. He said, you've given me enough in your note to know what's going on. Don't be counting on all of these things to place God in debt with you. God dispenses His grace as He is pleased to dispense His grace. Just like Peter, what's Peter saying here? Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We're all going to be richly rewarded. But what we, un what we need to understand is God dispenses his grace as God is pleased to dispense his grace. What does God say? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Each one of us belongs to God. We see God's Sovereign grace, actually, everywhere we look. This morning, I'm certain that two children were born this morning. And I'm equally certain that one of those children was born to a good home, to parents that are going to take care of them, to parents that's going to, that's going to see that this child gets everything that he or she needs. That child will be loved, and that child will be well provided for. But I'm also certain that a child was born this morning to parents who are going to neglect the child. And we ask ourselves, how is that? How can that be? Well, who brought those children into the world? The Lord has. Another example, you know, we can think of people who are very gifted. We can think of a, we can think of, of of a man, perhaps, I have one in mind who's very gifted with his hands and uh, very sharp. And it seems like anything that he does prospers. And, and we can think of others who don't have the intellect. They don't have the ability with their hands. God has made both of them, hasn't he? 
We can think back to children again. I mean, two children were born, one as healthy as can be, fine-looking, wonderful personality, beautiful young child. And the child that lays next to him has all kind of problems. Uh, will be on a helicopter and headed to Children's Hospital. Who brought both of the children into the world? God has. This is where many people will balk, but we have to go here. Let's think about our salvation for a minute. We're believers in Christ, right? We have faith in Jesus, right? You drive one, down one street and on the corner there's a Christian home. Christian parents, believing children, and you walk next door, and it's an unbelieving home. Wherein lies the difference? It's God's sovereign grace. Should the Christian home exalt themselves over the non-Christian home that's next door? No. But they, they may have a tendency to if they don't understand God's divine grace. Why are they believers while their neighbors are unbelievers? Why is that? It's because God has visited them with His grace. Why are we believing in Jesus right now? Why are we gathered here right now and not out somewhere with a hangover from some party that we attended last night? God's divine grace. We see, this is where the joy of salvation really connects with us. Why would God visit us? Why would He not just pass over us? You see, to listen to a lot of gospel presentations, you'd almost get the impression that God's like frustrated or something. You know, God would love to bless people, but they just won't let him do it. You've heard stuff like that, haven't you? And the whole burden of it all is put on the individual. You know, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And if we listen to that for very long, you can't help but to get the impression that, yeah, I guess I need to do all this and do all this like you did, right? Then I'll be in a position like you are, right? We can really lose track of what's going on. If we're in Christ this morning, why are we in Christ this morning? Ask yourself that question. Why do you believe? The Scripture answers that question one way. You believe because God has given you a gift called faith. And if you've turned from your sins, and if you have saving faith, you have turned from your sins. Why have you turned from your sins? Is it because we're better than our next-door neighbor who hasn't? No. It's because God has given you the gift of repentance. If He gives you the gift of faith, you also get the gift of repentance. Isn't that amazing? Think that through with me for a few minutes. If we think that we're in Christ based on a decision we made, and of course we have made a decision to come in Christ. I'm not taking that away from any of us. We do decide to be in Christ. 
But if our decision to be in Christ is because of some decision we've made, that's one thing. But if we're in Christ because Jesus has visited us bearing gifts and said, you are mine. Here's faith. Here's repentance. Oh, my goodness. Now you're starting to understand the good news of salvation. And this is my favorite thing to preach. My favorite thing to tell, to tell congregations is this. If you're in Christ this morning, that is exactly what Jesus has done for you. He has given you faith that will not fail. You can fall away for a period of time, but if you've got saving faith, that faith will not fail. Why? Because that faith is a gift that Christ has given you. It's divine. If we're following Jesus this morning, if it is the intention of your heart to want to follow Him, to listen to His Word, and to put His Word into your heart, and to put it into practice in your life, well, you know something? It's because God has given you repentance. That's why you're doing that. Isn't that tremendous? Why would God do that for us? Why would He do it for us? It's very clear He's not going to do that for everyone. That's very clear. Why would He do that for us? The Bible doesn't answer that question any more than saying it's according to the counsel of His will. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? But the effect that this has on our hearts is this. When you receive this gift and you understand that it is a gift, you want everybody to have it. You want everybody to have it. I remember being at the store when we were still, we still had our music store, and I remember working through this, kind of kicking and screaming because this is not easy stuff to work through, but I remember finally seeing this. I, I believe because God gave me faith. Faith is a gift. It's not something I did. It's something that was given to me. But once it's given to me, it's something that I very much do. God doesn't do the believing for me. I believe. God didn't do the repenting for me. I repented, but I did this in response to a gift that he gave me. Well, when I started understanding that, I started telling everybody about it. People would come in and want to talk about a guitar. I didn't want to talk about guitars. We'd end up back in my office, and I'd be trying to tell them about Jesus. They'd come in wanting a guitar, and we'd end up back in the office. This happened quite a bit. I didn't worry about selling guitars. The Lord worried about that. Our business prospered. My mind wasn't on selling guitars. My mind was on telling everybody about this wonderful gift that can be had simply by coming to Jesus and believing in Him. Because sometimes when you preach these kind of sermons, people will say, well, wait a second, I don't have, I don't think I have what you're talking about. Did God pass me over? And what I like to say is, well, would you like to have what God is talking about? And when people say, yeah, I think I would. I say, well, I think God's, I think God's visiting you right now. That's how it works. 
It's how it worked in my life. It's how it works in all of our lives. The last thing that I want to say, really, in closing, is isn't it wonderful to realize God's not frustrated? To listen to so many gospel presentations, you'd think that God's just frustrated and would love to do so many things, but He can't because we won't let Him. That's not the God of the Bible. Just get that out of your heads right now. Now, God of the Bible is the one who has the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, and He is distributing it to His people, and He is building a kingdom, and that kingdom is right on time. You read the book of Revelation, there's a lot that we don't understand in the book of Revelation, but one thing that we can understand is that Jesus continually wins against every onslaught that's against the kingdom of heaven. He continually wins. He wins, He wins, and He wins. And that's meant to encourage us. Not only does he win, he doesn't even break a sweat. Have you ever noticed that? He's not frustrated. He is sovereign. And that's great news in times of adversity, in times of trouble. If you're in Christ this morning, God has began a work in your life that he's going to see to completion. You are part of his kingdom and you will be with him for all eternity. I can't think of too much news that's more wonderful than that. And if you're not in Christ this morning and you think you'd like to be, Jesus' arms are wide open to you. And the fact that you would like to be is probably a response to the fact that he's calling you to be. And all that you've got to do is trust in him and begin following him. And he will transform your life. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we think about the gospel, as we think about this, div this divine and sovereign grace, O oh Lord, for you're allowed to do as you choose with what belongs to you, and we all belong to you, Lord. And we recognize, O oh Lord, that if we can call upon your name this morning, if we can, if we can call upon you, O oh Lord, as Lord and Savior, that that is from the Holy Spirit. We recognize this morning, Lord, that our faith in you is a gift that you have given us that we wouldn't have had you not distributed to us. We recognize, Lord, that we're like, we're like those who have been called at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and have received a denarius. We recognize that we've received that which we do not deserve. Now, O oh Lord, out of the abundance of this, Lord, we call on you to dispend this grace. Lord, dispense this grace liberally upon our communities, O oh Lord. Change people's hearts. Remove the indifference that more and more people would say, you know, I think I would like to have, I think I would like to have that faith. I think I would like to have that repentance. For then, O oh Lord, we, we will look at you for, as our all in all. So, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, Amen.